All right. Um, if uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, something I want to tell you about about myself is that I, I try not to preach at you. Um, in fact, I I just try to teach the Bible. Um, we we go through a portion of Scripture. My goal is that maybe we all understand Scripture a little more when we leave, but most of all, I hope you understand the character of God, um, who He is, who Jesus Christ is, what He has done. Um, and so, um, that's, that's my goal. Uh, I'm not trying to, to preach at you. Um, I'm not trying to... Um, I can't. I can't change you, anyways, right? Ultimately, it's up to God. It's up to His Holy Spirit. So, with that introduction, uh, this morning we're going to begin a study of First and Second Samuel. We're staying in the Old Testament because I've really enjoyed preaching in the Old Testament, and uh, others have said that they enjoyed. So, we're going to keep going. So, the story begins this morning um, during the period of the Judges. So, we're in the same time frame as Judges and Ruth. And we're going to begin with a story about a man named Elkanah. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Okay, so in other words, Elkanah has roots in Bethlehem, which is another word for Ephrath. Okay, he is from the same family as Naomi. Interesting. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. Penina. Some of these words are hard. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh, Hannah means favored. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Hannah's name means favored, okay? But unlike this Hannah, this Hannah had no children, okay? So she's favored, but she has no children. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, what this tells us is that Elkanah is worshiping the true God during the period of the judges, which is, makes him the, in the minority. It also tells us that Elkanah had some money to be able to do this regularly. Verse 4. <clears throat> On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, okay? 
Now, we're supposed to begin to sense some family drama brewing here. Okay, do you see it coming? Verse 6. And her rival, that's the other wife, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, how terrible is that? Hannah was mocked by Elkanah's other wife for the irony of being called favored and yet being childless and probably also because she was Elkanah's favorite wife. Okay, so you picking up on all this? All right. Verse 7. So it went on year by year, and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah, in some ways, represents the entire nation of Israel. She is favored, but not favored. Israel was God's chosen nation. Um, He had saved them from slavery. He had provided for them in the wilderness. He has given them the promised land. But God was never enough for them. Elkanah's question sounds sort of insensitive to us, doesn't it? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, is that what you would have said in that situation? I don't know. But if you change the subject and the object, could God not ask us the same question? Could God not ask the nation of Israel the same question? Am I not more to you than whatever your heart desires? Fill in the blank, right? And I want to suggest to you that is the central question of this entire book. That's what this book is about. God asking, am I enough? Is God enough? Keep that in mind. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, if you remember, this is the Nazarite vow that she is making. This was the same vow that God had commanded Samson's parents to take for him. And in fact, the only other person in the whole Bible to take a permanent Nazarite vow that we know of was... Does anybody know? 
Nobody knows. John the Baptist was the only other one. Okay. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. This is, a, this is the high priest, okay? Doesn't recognize prayer. Um, Hannah was having what we call in the South an ugly cry, okay? An ugly cry is when you lose all self-awareness and the emotions just come out, right? Tears, slobber, she can't even get the words out. She's so distraught. All right, verse 15, but Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This picture of Hannah reminds me of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is often described in the Gospels as being troubled in spirit. He was known for being um, someone who poured out his soul in prayer. He regularly showed his emotions. So if you're the kind of person with big emotions, then you're in good company in the Bible. Okay? Just a side note. What an interesting one. Verse 17. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now there's some fun little Hebrew in verse 17. In Eli's blessing, where he says, May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He actually says, May God give you the asking that you asked of him. Okay? May he give you the asking that you asked of him. The word is sa'al. Hold on to that. Listen to this. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Okay, Samuel means name of God, where God has heard. And it's very familiar, uh, or sorry, it's very similar to the word for asked, which is sa'al. Okay, it's a, it's a, a, a word partial of that. And so what she's saying is, I asked God for a son and he heard me. And there's also a little bit of foreshadowing here because the next important character in the book of Samuel is a man named 
Saul. Okay? The people of Israel, Israel are going to ask God for a king. And God gives them Saul. In other words, you asked for it. <laughs> and we'll find out why that's funny later when we get to Saul. But if you put all of this together, I'm giving you all these little details because they're important. They're important in the writing, but they're important to the story. If you put it together, we already have the theme of this book. God is asking us a question. I already mentioned, you know, am I enough? Is God enough? Okay, but if you put it all together, the real question of this book is, am I not more to you than ten kings? Am I not more to you than what you're asking for? That's, that's the question of this book. Okay? You asked me for a son, I gave it to you, but it, am I enough? You're going to ask me for a king, and I'm going to give it to you, but am I, am I enough? That's the question. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't ask God for things, or that we shouldn't ask God for things. God is a good father. The Bible, in fact, is not anti-king, as some have claimed. Um, wanting a king wasn't really their problem. This is a, a deeper question. This is a heart question that God is asking. Do you think that having a king will solve all your problems? Do you think that having a son will solve all your problems? And you can fill in the blank with girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, spouse, husband, job, money, car, house, beauty, power, whatever, right? The question is, would you trust God if, would you trust God if you didn't get what you wanted? Now Hannah, at the end of chapter 1, she keeps baby Samuel for three years in order to nurse him because Eli's not going to be able to do that, right? And then she takes him to Shiloh and she gives her firstborn son to Eli the priest, the same man who didn't even recognize prayer. She gives him away just as she promised God she would. Now that tells us something about Hannah's heart, doesn't it? She wanted a son, but she loved and trusted God more than her son. She was willing to give Samuel up. The baby was a blessing from God, but he did not belong to Hannah. She even, this is kind of a cool little thing, she even brought three bulls to sacrifice at Shiloh, which was an extravagant offering. So she's not only giving up her son, she's like giving up the farm because God answered her prayer. Now listen to Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. We're going to 
look at this before we kind of wrap it up with some application. This is long, but please pay close attention to what she says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, Penina. (laughs) Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 10. That is the first mention of King in the book, and it comes from the lips of Hannah. And she gets it right. This prayer shows us how we ought to think about kings. And not just kings, but everything else in this world. God brings low and God exalts. God gives strength and God makes weak. In the stories that follow, we're going to see God do this over and over again. He will raise men up and He will bring men down. All of it to prepare the way for the one true King Jesus Christ. And that will be more clear as we go along. But what the book of Samuel wants to teach us is how to worship God with our lives as Hannah seems to be doing in this prayer. God is going to teach us to learn to trust Him 
in our hearts as favored children of a good father. That's Hannah, the favored child who is worshiping here with the recognition of who God is. And the first lesson I think that we learn from today's text is this. The cry of a favored child is a cry of faith. The cry of a favored child is a cry of faith. Um, if you've been around little children, you know they cry when they need something. Sometimes it feels like they're just crying for no reason. Okay, We have no idea what they're thinking, but probably they, they think they need something. If a baby never cried, then something is wrong, right? And in fact, there are orphanages... Um, around the world that are full of children and they rarely cry. They stop crying because they don't believe anyone's going to come. And that's incredibly sad, right? But I want to ask you something. Children who know that they are loved will cry out to their parents. So those of you with newborns, we've got several, okay? I know it's hard. I know they're keeping you up at night. But they cry because they love you. <laughs> because they know you love them. Because they know you're coming for them, right? And there's something there. And so church, I want to ask you, how's your prayer life? What's the connection? Well, if you have stopped crying out to God, then you are living like an orphan. If you're not in your heart crying out to God, then you're not living like a favored child. You're living like an orphan. You have no faith that God hears you or that He cares about you. Or else in your distorted world, you've convinced yourself that you don't need Him. That you're doing okay on your own. And that's not right. <laughs> Something is very wrong if we are not crying out to God in prayer. Our cries of faith reveal our heart. Our prayer life tells us everything we need to know about our faith. If we say we have faith, but we're not crying out to God in prayer, there is no faith. I don't know what you call that. But it's not the faith of the Bible. Are we speaking to God? Like He is our loving Father? Or do we think of Him as an absent Father? Or a cruel Master? Do we speak to Him at all? Prayer is, is 
essential to the Christian life. It's vital. And we're going to talk a lot about prayer in this book because it's going to come up a lot. Second, this morning, I think we need to ask a broader question about the church, okay? And I don't just mean Christ Fellowship. I do mean us, but I also mean um, all the churches, all the local churches in our part of the world. My question for us is this. Is the local church today favored but barren? Okay? Favored but barren. Are we favored but barren? What I mean is this. We preach and we teach and we believe the Scriptures. We worship the God of the Bible. We understand the Gospel. But are we making disciples? The New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply is the Great Commission. Okay? So where God told Adam and Eve, I want you to to have babies and fill the earth. Okay? Jesus told His disciples, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples. And so I'm suggesting to you that one of the applications of our text is that a church that fails to make disciples is sort of like Hannah, favored but barren. So what should we do in that situation? I think we should first humble ourselves and pray. And talk to God. And and we learn that from Hannah, right? That's what she does. She turns that that angst, that, that suffering, that feeling of, you know, What's wrong? Like she doesn't internalize it. She takes it to God in prayer. She pours out her heart to God. And so I want to encourage us to pray together that we would be a fruitful church. Let's pray for our neighbors. Let's pray for the neighborhood behind the church. Let's pray for your local neighbors. Let's pray for the Horn Lake community that we would be a fruitful church. We should want to see people coming to Christ like a barren woman wants a baby. That longing is is God's vision for, for this world. That's why the church exists. That's why Jesus stood over the city of Jerusalem and wept for the lost. And so maybe we need to start with praying that God would burden our hearts to even feel that, to feel that sense of like, this matters. This is important. And I think we start as a church, I think we start with our own children. Um, I've said it before, that the children of this church are our most important disciples. Um, scripture is very clear about that. Like that's, that's where we have to start. We're not doing it with our own families and how are we going to reach our neighbors, right? And so 
Um, the children of this church belong to God, not us. This is something that's hard for us sometimes, but even as parents, like by a lot, it doesn't matter. Like children don't belong even to their parents. They ultimately belong to God. We learn that from Hannah as well. We worship a covenant-keeping God. Do you understand God loves your children more than you do? God loves our children more than we do. He has bigger plans for our kids than we do. Right? We, we want, and I'm speaking to myself here, we want our kids to be happy and healthy and successful. Right? We want them to have more opportunities than we did. We want them to enjoy life more than we have. Those are our plans. Okay? God wants our kids to know and follow Jesus. Is that what our children are learning from us? Are we making them disciples of the Lord Jesus? Or are we making them disciples of the American dream? Two very different things. Are we more concerned with their grades or their athletic ability than we are with their hearts? And that brings us back to that same hard question that I've already told you. This is what Samuel is going to keep asking us. Is God not more to us than what we want? Is He not more to us than what we want for our kids? Is God King? Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we sometimes take you for granted. We forget that you're a good father. We go through seasons in our lives, even as believers, when we just stop praying. I've been in one of those seasons recently, and I know that if we belong to you, you don't let us stray forever even that you use to teach us but Lord I just pray that you would turn us around lead us to repentance help us to recognize that as individuals and maybe even as a church we are far more concerned with what we want with what we think we need than with what you want And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, refocus, to recalibrate around first the message of the gospel. That Christ Jesus is enough. What you have accomplished in him for us is sufficient for forgiveness and for all righteousness. Lord, I pray also that you would help us to see your vision for this church not to be favored and barren but to be favored and fruitful and would you lead us in that we pray in Jesus name Amen let's stand together and sing